0: So I want to start off this morning kind of sharing with you, I've, I was sharing with our oldest daughter, Emily, that I observed something very strange recently that it seemed like I was complaining to her that it felt like my shirts are getting a little bit tighter and I was wondering out loud like, well, maybe it's you know somebody uh, washing the laundry in hot water or, or leaving the dryer on too long. And of course, the answer is that I am the one in charge of doing the laundry, so I know that that's not the case. And so I wonder if I've been maybe gaining that dreaded COVID-19 pounds from being trapped and in shelter-in-place over this past year and kind of leave, living a very sedentary lifestyle. And of course, Facebook is reading my mind because this ad keeps popping up for this, uh, uh, this program called Noom. Maybe you've seen it on your social media feed. But it's basically this. It's a weight loss program without dieting, right? Now, If you're like me, that sounds too good to be true. So I spent a lot of time researching what are their actual methodologies, analyzing the costs, reading all the reviews. Why am I doing all this? Because what I really want to know is, does that really work? And I suspect that many of us feel that at times about our faith in Jesus, particularly when we go through uh, seasons of difficulty or struggle in life. That faith in Jesus sounds good, but does it really work? And how does it really work? If you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to James chapter 1. We are launching this brand new series called Vibrant. And the word vibrant means to be full of energy, to be full of color, to be full of life. And I want to ask, does that describe your faith? Or do you find your relationship with God is discouraged and kind of flat or even gray in the midst of the challenges of today. James speaks of a vibrant faith that really works, even when life around us doesn't seem to. That it moves our faith from information in our heads into transformation in the practical realities and struggles of life that we face, even today. And so, To give you a little bit of background, it's written, obviously, by a man named James. He's not one of the 12 disciples or uh, James, the brother of John. Instead, he's the actual half-brother of Jesus, except that he's fully human, the actual physical son of Joseph and Mary. They had many children after Jesus was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to imagine being James. You're growing up with a big brother who never lies, never sins, he's never wrong, never gets in trouble. That's a pretty hard act to follow. So you can imagine that James is probably probably very aware of his own personal flaws and failures. And then when Jesus started his ministry as the Messiah, we learn in John chapter 7 verse 5 that James and the rest of Jesus' siblings did not believe him. They thought that their big brother had gone cuckoo for cocoa puffs. And yet, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 7, it records that James was a personal eyewitness to seeing Jesus' resurrection. That he came to believe in his brother as the Son of God, Savior and Lord. And in fact, in Galatians chapter 1 verse 19, it records that he became an apostle, that he is one of the leaders over the church, one of the appointed gospel messengers who witnessed the resurrection of Christ. And yet, here in James chapter 1 verse 1, we're going to meet a very humbled man who, instead of doubting Jesus and challenging Jesus, now sees himself as a servant of Jesus, as Lord and Savior. And as a pastor, he writes to Jewish Christians who've been scattered and are in pain. You see, around this time, a vicious persecution against uh, the believers, against the church had broken out in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, driving them all out of Jerusalem and dispersing them throughout Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the earth, this diaspora of Jewish believers. And so James writes to them to encourage them in their trials as they wrestle with persecution from outside the church, divisions within the church, and temptations within themselves. That in the midst of these many challenges, James speaks. Jesus is calling you to live a vibrant faith that works even when life doesn't in the face of all of these troubles of life. So here we are, James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's stop right there for a moment. So we see in starting in verse 2 that as these Jewish Believers are experiencing all kinds of trial. We'll see throughout the book of James, they experience poverty and prejudice and persecution and temptation. That's all going to be addressed. All these trials, James says, count it all as joy. Why? Because in verse 2, God is using these difficulties to test your faith. Now, I want you to hear this. It's not like a pass-fail exam where if you do the right things, and it determines if you deserve salvation from God. That's not what the word there means. This is the same word that's used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, of like gold being tested by fire, burning away that which is not true, that which does not last. And so it's not the kind of test where you have to do the right things and be the right kind of person, but something that God is doing in people, to burn away that which isn't true or last. And he says to rejoice in that because the result is, in verse 3, steadfastness. In other words, that your faith would grow strong, that your faith would grow in endurance, that you won't give up or give in from all the bumps and bruises of life as you experience the reality of God in your difficulties today. And so part of what this book is telling us is that these trials that we experience in our lives they're not an accident, they're not a coincidence, but that God is using them, verse four, to grow us towards perfection and completion. In other words, that God is growing us in maturity, so that our faith lacks nothing, so that it's fully equipped for all of life's difficulties and challenges. And so I want you to think about it this way. A metal smith back then during those biblical times would test gold by putting it in a big pot and then heating it over a fire until all the impurity and the dross would rise up to the surface and then they would scoop it off, dump out all the impurities, and then they would do it over and over again, heating up that pot, scooping out the impurities again and again. And the way that you knew if the gold was pure was that this metalsmith would look down and see his own reflection in the gold. And so God uses the trials in our lives to test us, to purify us over and over again, removing the the impurities so that one day he looks down and he fully sees his own reflection in us. His goal for our lives is not simply ease or entertainment, but as we join in Jesus' suffering, we become more like Jesus in his character. And so the question is, how do we get there? Look at verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, if any of us lacks wisdom about how to endure during these difficulties, how to handle the difficulties of life, then we can ask God, and what does he do? Does he give sparingly, cheaply, reluctantly because you mess up too often? No, he gives generously without reproach, it says. You see, a bad parent will criticize you like, well, how'd you get yourself into this mess? And why can't you figure out how to get yourself out of this mess? But as a good father, he guides his children without condemnation because he understands, he cares, he wants to help you through this difficulty. And so what we want to see here is that wisdom isn't just something that we receive. It's something that we practice as, we're give, as it's given to us. And so the big idea of this entire passage this morning is that vibrant faith per- perseveres by living out God's wisdom in life's trials. That through faith in Jesus, you and I can approach the Father and ask for wisdom, and he will provide it generously. And there's a lot of ways that we see him do that throughout the Bible. That he'll do that through the Holy Spirit, giving us a conviction in our hearts, or in prayer. Or there's time that he gives wise counsel through mature believers in your life. And of course, most of all, he gives it through His Word, that as you're reading this, that it's treasure that speaks to our lives and our hearts on how to live and how to face many of the challenges. And so the great thing about the Word of God is that it's kind of the filter So to judge all the other things. So when you receive a conviction in your heart or maybe somebody gives you some wise advice, what you do is you filter it through the word of God to help us determine if that's genuinely the will and wisdom of of God. Because he will never contradict himself. And so he speaks to us and he drops wisdom into our hearts. But there's a condition. I want you to look at verse 6. That. We need to ask in faith, it says. What that means is we need to ask God without doubting the character and the promises of God because there's a tendency in us to kind of waver back and forth in trusting his guidance, trusting his goodness and his faithfulness like the waves of the sea being tossed back and forth by the winds of circumstance. It kind of looks like this. Well, God, you know, you gave me some wisdom and I gave it a try today. But being honest and humble isn't helping me at work. Or being kind and forgiving isn't healing my marriage. And so we get tossed back and forth by simply the winds of circumstance. And if you're like that, verse 7 and 8 say, then we won't receive any help from God when we are double-minded. Literally, that word means is being of two minds. That you're kind of hedging your bets. on. In one part of your mind, you trust God. But on the other part of your mind, that... I'm also working my own plans just in case God isn't real or just in case he doesn't come through for me. And what the Bible says is that you will be unstable in all of your ways, that you'll be schizophrenic in your faith because you're trying to live in two realities and you're going to be tossed and torn between those two. So when life is hard, we have this tendency to focus on our problems like looking through a microscope and we become nearsighted. All we see is the pain, and we can't see past it. And so what we need is a new lens, God's perspective, God's wisdom about our situation. So let's put some skin on this. What struggle are you facing today? And by the end of this message, God wants you to look at your circumstances through heaven's eyes instead of your own. And if you will come to him and ask him, he will generously give wisdom to everyone who asks and trusts him by putting his guidance into practice. When God does speak to you about your situation, especially through the grace and truth of his word, are you being double-minded? Well, I kind of trust God, but if God doesn't give me what I want, when I want, how I want, then I'm going to use a backup plan just in case. And sometimes we feel that way because the circumstances don't change right away. And I will tell you this. When you pray and ask for wisdom, when you pray and ask for God to do things in your life, God can and does change circumstances. We've seen that. But what if the primary goal that God has for your life is not to change your circumstances, but to change you? for your good and for his glory. The testing of your faith, that you might be refined through the fire and grow in steadfastness, in perseverance, in living out a vibrant life. Let's move on. Let's pick up in verse nine. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation James is shifting gears and starting to talk about things about wealth. But I want you to think about this way. If your house is shaking apart, what do you examine first? Well, what the house is sitting on. Because if the foundation is unstable, then the house will be unstable. And so in the same way, when your faith is unstable, what is it sitting on? What is the foundation? See, because many of us plant our faith and our foundation on our financial security in this life. And it can be shaken up quite easily. So in verses 9 and 10, he says, Let those who are humbled and lowly in life, let the humbled and poor boast in God exalting them. And let those who are exalted and rich boast in God humbling them. Why is he saying this? Because if you're poor in life, you suffer from distinct disadvantages, limited access to medical care, educational opportunities, resources to build a better life and a better legacy for yourself. But if you love Jesus, trust Jesus and follow Jesus, if you belong to his kingdom, then you're given the same grace, the same equality and dignity as the rich person in God's family. That you're given the same love of God, the same forgiveness of sin. You're given the same seat of honor in heaven for the rich and the poor through the person and work of of Jesus. So you may not have riches here, but God has given himself to you as the greatest gift of all, and so you will be exalted in Christ. Now the flip side in the second half of verse 10 and 11 is that if you are rich in this world, you've built up for yourself a strong portfolio and financial reserves and investment properties. Then we picture picture yourself and your wealth as a luxurious field of flower-covered grass, and you own this little slice of your own slice of heaven on earth. But you forget that you live in Palestine under the scorching heat of the desert sun. And so you and your pursuits of wealth will wither and perish by circumstances beyond your control, and things can go just like that. So stay humbled before God, in light of eternity, because the rest is temporary. So James says to us, let the humble boast in how God will exalt them. And let those who are exalted and rich boast in how God will humble them. Because if you're poor now, you are only poor for now. And you have a better hope and better riches in heaven. And if you're rich now, you are only rich For now, because you can lose it all with a bad day, and you will lose it all on your last day. So we better lay up our trust and our treasures in heaven. So the question here isn't, is God blessing or cursing me with poverty or prosperity? It's, whether we're rich or poor, where is my real treasure? Where am I putting my faith? And so verse 12 is kind of a mic drop from James. He says, Blessed is the man who remains, there's that same word again, steadfast in faith under trial. That whether we lack wealth today or we're going to lose our wealth tomorrow, that we need to hang on to Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to prioritize Jesus and worship Jesus. Because when we withstood that test, when our faith is refined in the fire, that we will receive the victorious crown of eternal life that's promised to those who've been steadfast in loving Jesus, and trusting Jesus, and following Jesus. So the point here is that rich or poor, vibrant faith perseveres in pursuing what's permanent instead of what's perishable. Having more money is not going to protect you. And having less money is not going to destroy you. But godly wisdom looks at life's circumstances through the eyes of faith to see that my poverty and my prosperity are both temporary. And so my real joy and security is in my eternity with Jesus. During the season of Lent, many of us will fast from a few meals, maybe per week, or fast from coffee for a whole season, or chocolate, or social media to prepare our hearts to worship the risen Savior. Which is, those are all fine. But what I've been inspired by lately is three brothers and sisters in Christ in our church, guided by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and by his conviction, are fasting from their entire paychecks from now until Easter to give generously to ministries that serve under resourced people, to give personally to invest in individuals as an expression of the dignity and grace of Christ for those who have less. Isn't that amazing? Can you see the color and the vibrancy of faith as these young men and women are learning to live in light of eternity instead of what's temporary? So I want to ask you, are you investing your life in treasure that's perishable or permanent? Now, is it wrong to have a good job or a good good money or a good house or a good car? Of course not. But if you're placing your hopes in what's perishable, you're going to constantly ride the waves of circumstances. In other words, your joy and peace is going to come in and out with the tides of your money. It's going to go up and down with your health. It's going to rise and fall with how your relationships are going. But if your joy is in what's eternal then circumstances have no power to destroy you or destroy your life. So count it all joy, brothers and sisters, as we go through the fire because we're reminded by the fire of what lasts and it strengthens our resolve and our love for the one who lasts forever. Now what's interesting about this text is that it shows us that not only are trials a part of the Christian life, but so are temptations. And so the question that these Jewish believers might have uh, as James is writing to them is, is, if God tests us for our good, does he ever tempt us for our good as well? Let's read on, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, By his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. (laughs) Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So what's happening here is that when trouble comes, there's a temptation in us to escape the pain instead of facing it with Jesus. I'm under so much stress, so I'm going to drink a little more. I'm going to covet more. I'm going to lust more. I'm going to take out my anger at people at home. And there's a temptation in us to blame God for that. Well, Lord, you put me in this place. You put me in this pain. You're not fixing it. Plus, you gave me these desires. You made me this way. So it's not my fault. It's yours. Verse 13 says, If the urges within you are leading you away from God, then it's not God who's leading you. He's holy. He is righteous. He never is tempted by evil, and he tempts no one with it. So what's the real source? Of our sinfulness. Verse 14, it says that we're lured by something within us, that we can't blame God, we can't even blame Satan or our situation. Now, do Satan and circumstances lay out enticing bait for us sometimes? Of course. But we bite that bait because of our own sinful desires. We are the ones who want it. Now, I want you to understand clearly. Uh, Having desire is not a bad thing. Is it wrong to enjoy sex or money or a glass of wine or good food or a nice day off? No. But sin is taking good things, things that God intends for us, taking these good things, appropriating them in the wrong way by taking a shortcut apart from God that leads us to ruin. How so? Look at verse 15. It gives us this weird picture that our own desire is pregnant with the seeds of temptation within us. So we're pregnant with these seeds of temptation through our desire. I see it. I want it. It will make me feel better, even without God. And so like a baby in the womb, if you feed it, it's going to continue growing. I'm just going to keep entertaining these selfish thoughts or indulging these impulses until it keeps feeding it and growing it and it gives birth to sin. Now, I want you to hear this very, very clearly. Being tempted is not sin, but what we do with that temptation is. Does that make sense? So the question is, are you feeding sinful fantasies until it gives birth to sinful realities in your life? And then, when sin hits puberty, when it grows up, it also gives birth to something else. Death. That is the fruit of sin in our lives around us. Think of it this way, all this destruction that comes from sin. If someone were to ask you, well, would you like to experience divorce and depression? Would you like to experience addiction or devastation? Would you like to become a violent, mean-spirited, bitter person? Then no one would bite. But the reason we keep sinning is that our desires are enticed by the bait, but we neglect to pay attention to the hook. And so it reels us in towards death. Sin will destroy you, destroys the people around you. It destroys your integrity, your legacy, your relationships. And ultimately, it separates you from God for eternity apart from Christ. So in verse 16, James urges us, beloved, don't be deceived by temptation. It only brings forth ruin. And so the question is, how do we keep ourselves from biting that hook? Look at verse 17 where sin births death, God is a father of lights. He gives only good and perfect gifts that come from heaven, the kind that satisfies our soul's deepest needs and our truest joys. You won't find that from within yourself or from your sin. He comes from above these good and perfect gifts that come from a loving, good, and perfect father. The temptation of sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It's unreliable and unstable as shifting shadows. But God is a father of lights. He never flickers. He's never fickle. His goodness never changes. His fulfillment lasts forever. And the great thing about this is that you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to try harder. To get that from him, instead in verse 18, it says that God, by his own will, that means by his own desire, he brings forth in us, (coughs) excuse me, he brings us forth into his salvation, into his family, by giving us the word of truth, this life-giving gospel about the Son of God, the Savior, about Jesus. And so I want you to catch this in this passage. Our desire brought forth death, but God's desire brought forth Life in us. And so, the point of this last section is that vibrant faith perseveres in trusting the promises of God over the promises of our sinful desires. That we don't want to be double minded. You have to choose whether you're going to trust in the death dealing temptation of sin or the life giving truth of Jesus to rescue you in your troubles, to fulfill you in those tough situations. Of life, As a pastor, as your pastor, I love you guys. And I'm devastated to see people bite the hook and get reeled off. They disappear out of relationships, out of community, out of the church. I'm devastated to see people believe the lies of sinful desire that, well, if it makes me feel good, if it makes me feel better, then what's so wrong about that? What's the big deal about that? And then too late, you discover, as the sweet escape of the bait gives way to the cruelty of the inescapable hook, you get convinced that the temptations are too strong and my faith is too weak. And so we sit in chains of secrecy and darkness and shame, embarrassed and afraid to turn to Jesus and to his family. But Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, now there's no condemnation in Christ. You remember what we learned in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 and 18 that whatever temptation you faced, Jesus has been there. When he came in the flesh, he's been there. He understands. He didn't stand back immune from trials and suffering and temptation. He entered into it to identify with us in it and to deliver us from it. And so he goes to the cross. He suffers and dies in our place, for our sin, rises as Savior to give us freedom and fulfillment forever. That's why he's such an amazing God. That's why we worship him. And you can turn to him. You can trust him for his wisdom and his power today. So I want to ask you, is your faith vibrant today? Is it full of life and full of color and full of light because you love Jesus and you live for Jesus? Okay, well, how about when your life is darkened by the storms of life? Is your faith still vibrant then? I'm reminded of the true story of a follower of Jesus named Horatio Spafford. He was an American lawyer. And what happened to him was he invested almost his entire financial assets into real estate. But, during the great Chicago fire of 1871, he lost it all. Tested by the fires of life. He was pretty much ruined, and so he decided to take his family on a trip to Europe in order for them to regroup together, where they would meet up with their friend and evangelist, D.L. Moody, as he was preaching over there, maybe supporting his ministry and getting encouraged from that. And yet, Mr. Spafford had to deal with yet another financial difficulty back at home, so he was delayed. And so he sent his family ahead to cross the Atlantic on a steamship. But they never made it. Tragically, their steamship was struck by another boat, and it sank within minutes, killing 226 people, including all four of Horatio's daughters, aged 11, aged 9, a 5-year-old and a two-year-old who was sucked from her mother's arms by the billowing waves. Only his wife survived, and she broke the horrific news to him via a telegraph with some simple words, saved alone. Facing finances and a family and a future that is completely devastated in the midst of of the suffering and the testing and the fire, he encountered God as he was crossing the ocean and he put pen to paper and penned this most famous hymn, When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well. With my soul. Some of you are not in your head because you know exactly what that means, what that looks like. Others, you're not so sure. But here's the point you can. When dark clouds and sea bill- billows roll into your life, that's exactly when you can experience Jesus, His wisdom, a vibrant faith full of life because the one who suffered with us, who died. For us, who rose from the grave as promised, because he's alive, he makes us alive with him. Because he endured, he gives us wisdom and strength to endure in him. And so vibrant faith perseveres by living out God's wisdom in life's trials and temptations. Do you know the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is just information, and too much of it will lead to your paralysis of indecision. But wisdom is knowing the application, its practical guidance and skill in the art of living in Christ. And so whatever trouble you face, would you ask God for wisdom today so that in your pain, you can say, it is well with my soul. That in poverty or prosperity, it is well with my soul in your temptation and affliction, it is well with my soul. May you begin to live out a vibrant faith, trusting and experiencing the goodness and wisdom of God today. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the beauty and power of your word. May your people come before you this morning remembering how good you are and turning to you for the kind of practical guidance to follow Jesus, to trust Jesus, and may we have the courage to obey him. And as we experience his strength in us, he can carry us through any storm of life. So may we come to you and remember not just the difficulties, but remember the goodness of the Father of lights the Father who gave us the Son of God as Savior, rescue.